Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you so much um, for this morning, God, this picture of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as your bride and worship you and hear your word. Father, I pray over Pastor Jim, God, that uh, you would speak through him um, the words that we all need to hear this morning. Father, I thank you for those that have traveled far to be here and for those that um, are here every Sunday morning. God, I just ask that you would speak to us personally this morning. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, let's start with a question. What are you willing to pay to be part of and enjoy the kingdom? What are you willing to pay? Both of those two little stories, um, the parables of Jesus, they gave up, sold everything that they had. In fact, you see that in Acts 2. They were selling their property and all that they had to take care of one another. What are you willing to give up? to enjoy the kingdom. I'm not talking about entering the kingdom. I kind of look at salvation this way. There's kind of a door to the kingdom and you accept the Lord and you step in. And then what? What happens then? We spent a lot of time over the, over the last couple of years talking about that. What are you willing to pay to begin to enjoy the kingdom? We're in a series, well, a theme all summer. We're talking about goodness. Um, Scott McKnight wrote a book on goodness, and he, uh, appropriately, I thought it was wonderful, the word tov for goodness occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament, so it's got to be important if it occurs that many times. That's one of the most prolific words throughout the Old Testament, and it, it reappears in a different form in the New Testament. And we've been talking about what makes a church good, what does goodness look like? And today we're going to talk about what it means to be servant, uh, serving others, service. And it's real easy to go uh, just to the verses, but you've already heard most of those verses. You've heard many of them on what it means to serve one another. So we're not going to do that. Uh, last week, you may remember, we talked about justice. And I just want to remind you what we talked about. That as Christians, our concept of justice is very different, and this has to do with goodness we're not there for vengeance. We're not there for punishment. That's not what we think of about justice. When you look through the scriptures, Jesus began to change all of that. And he began to say things like, turn the other cheek. We looked at that last week. Love one another. Love your enemies. Especially your enemies. Love them. And so justice for us is not about vengeance and it's not about punishment. Rather, it's about God's crushing love to bring about repentance. So I concluded last uh, week during communion by saying, I'm not opposed to harsh treatment of people that abuse children, for example. 
pastors who are doing things they shouldn't be doing. I'm not opposed to harsh treatment, but I'm not, I'm not interested in the judgment and the vengeance aspect of it. That's why God said he's the one that gives just uh, vengeance. It's not us. What I'm mostly interested in is when I see the harsh treatment meted out to people who are doing things they shouldn't be doing, I'm interested in the redemptive aspect and God, I've been praying all along. Some of you know what's going on with churches around the country. And God, clean house. Clean the, clean the church out. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. Clean house with these pastors who are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. But it's not because of justice. It's not because of vengeance. My definition of justice, as I argued last week, is for repentance. God crushed them so that they will understand the, the They'll experience the guilt of what they have done and turn to you in sorrow and repentance. Seek forgiveness. So as we move through, we've been moving through all summer on this concept of justice. This raises a question. That is, how do you learn to live when you read these two things from Jesus out of Matthew, these two parables, how do you, how do you actually learn to live with a true kingdom mentality? How do you do that? Okay, getting across the line into the kingdom is one thing, but that's not the end of the story. We all have to live our lives, don't we? We all have to walk down that road where we begin to experience the various ways that the Lord shapes us. Some of us, uh, some of you go through more affliction than others, and it's hard to understand and make sense of it. In the middle of all that, how do we actually shape, shape a kingdom mentality up here? How does that happen? And uh, some weeks ago, I, I read to you out of, um, been reading one of the books I've been reading, Miroslav Volf, For the Life of the World, Theology That Makes a Difference. And he starts off by saying something that I think is real important before we even talk about what it means to serve each other. Willingness to embrace a vision of the good life. Okay, pause. What did God make you for? What did he make us for? He didn't make us for death. He didn't make us to suffer under the curse. That's not what we're made for. And that's honestly, that's why community and the Holy Spirit is so important when we lose somebody that's dear to us. When I lost my first wife, uh, I don't know if I could have made it without community. One day I knocked on the door, I had two little children, and I opened the door um, soon after Judy died, and there's five moms with buckets and mops said, what are you doing here? And they said, we came to clean your house because we know how hard you're working. And right behind them were their husbands and they're saying, and you're coming with us. And they took me away and these five moms walked in and cleaned the house and took my kids. And, and I don't know what I would have done if I had not had community around me, right? One day the door, I hear a rustling at the door and uh, I opened the door and our assistant pastor, he's standing there with a bag of groceries and a piece of paper on it with my address and he's looking at it he looks up and he goes I suppose it's too late to be anonymous huh <laughs> I don't know what I would have done without community so God made us for something very different we're going to talk about that in, in just a, a few minutes what did he actually make us for we'll start with this idea he makes us for pretty deep joy deep fulfilling joy that's what all humans are made for so as Wolf, um, he goes through all this and he talks about uh, earlier in the book how we naturally want to move toward the things that we think will make us happy. So he raises this point. The willingness to embrace a vision 
of the good life and hold on to it is critically tied to the values which we identify and to the kind of people that we want to be. Isn't that a good statement? The willingness to embrace a vision of the good life and hold on to it is crucially tied to the values with which we identify and to the kind of selves we desire to be. For becoming a new person, a leap of self-identification from the old self to a new self is indispensable. We teach, every good teacher teaches that learning involves unlearning. In order for you to learn something, you have to unlearn something. And so in a fallen world, when you turn to Christ and you walk through that door and you enter the kingdom, it doesn't end there. That's the beginning of the journey. And it requires a lifetime of unlearning certain things that the world has taught you and relearning other things. The good, flourishing life is not a matter, it's not just a matter of becoming a new person, but of learning to live out an entirely new identity. Learning how to live that out. He goes on a little bit later, and he says, after all, we are seeking to articulate the true life, in other words, what God made us for, not just our preferred kind of life. So one of the things we teach uh, in the classroom at Denver Seminary is that all of you, and some of you have heard me say this, all of you have two theologies. You have a formal theology that you say you believe. The clearest example that I can give you of that is Paul says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. We all hold to that, right? But then we have our actual theology that we live out. How many of you complain? My hand's up, by the way. Yeah, all of you, except for the three that just lied. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and so we have these two theologies. And I've argued in many different ways, as long as our, for example, as long as our divorce rate equals the world, we say we believe in Christian marriage, but yet we have a divorce rate that equals the world, then we're telling the world we don't really believe our own theology about marriage. The moment we say we know we shouldn't be um, complaining, but then we go around complaining, we're, t- we're showing to the world that we don't believe our own theologies. And so the further apart these are, the more it looks like hypocrisy. And the closer they come together, the more it looks like a joyful, flourishing life, to use Wolf's imagery, a flourishing life, because it's becoming who we are. That's that journey through the kingdom where we bring together our beliefs and what the world taught us. So the beliefs we've been taught in church and the world has given us a whole, a whole bucket full of beliefs that aren't true. They're just not true. And it's a, it's a very complicated and long process to bring those together. But the closer they come, the more joy you feel. Talking to the teenagers one time back in January, February, talked about how God uses our sin to uh, shape us into Christ. And they're like, how's that? Well, you're going down the road the way God made you, and then you go over here and you do something stupid. And uh, we call that sin. And God kind of chuckles, and you say, I'm not happy. So God moves you back. So you're going down the road, pretty soon you're doing over here something stupid. And, and God chuckles, and, it's, and you say, you're not happy. And God says, I know, I didn't make you for that. Let's move you back. And eventually, you, there comes a point in life as you walk with the Lord long enough, and you mature where you say, 
I don't really like living life in a sinful way. It's a lot more joyful. If I don't do that, Nancy, uh, my second wife, when we got married, we just agreed, let's just keep it simple. Let's just do that. Let's just love one another. Get all the entanglements of all the world out if we can and keep it simple. And that's the journey that he's talking about is learning to pay that price. That's what I asked you. What are you willing to pay to enjoy the richness of the kingdom? It's going to cost you. It is. Some of, the, some of you, it's cost a terrible price for things that you weren't created for. I know that. Some of you right now are fighting illnesses that are life-threatening. Some of your marriages, I know, are struggling a little bit. And uh, we weren't created for that. And so what is this flourishing life all about that he's talking about? You know, that's Galatians 5. So picture a life like this. Love. Where you feel loved. You feel loved by the people around you. And you enjoy loving the people around you as well. Joy. You're experiencing that deep joy. Okay? This is called the fruit of the Spirit. And you're able to share that joy with others by blessing them. You have been blessed so that you can bless others. Peace. Shalom. You're at rest. That's what we are made for. To be at rest. We're not made to be entangled with the, the, the struggles of the world and all the pressure that uh, our careers put on us and all of that. We weren't made for that. You know, um, if you look at those people that spend 40 years in a corporation and then they retire, do you know that their lifespan after retiring is less than five years on the average? So much of their identity is wrapped up in what their corporate world tells them to do. And all of a sudden, you take away that. Success has been defined for us by the world throughout all of our careers. And you take that away. How do you redefine success? How do you move from success to a sense of significance? That's really tough. That's a very long journey. I've asked many of our people who have retired over the last nine years, what do you wish you knew before you retired? And that's one of the things that always comes up. That's one of them. Didn't know how to make that transition. So you have, you know, you have love, joy, peace, patience, People around you. I mean, grandparents are really good at this with the grandkids, right? My kids have asked me, how come you're so patient with the grandkids and you weren't with us? Well, it's because I love the grandkids. I just put up with you. (laughs) (laughs) We learn patience by walking the road, and we realize that God is very gracious, very, very gracious, uh, and he's very patient with us. You know, uh, my very first sermon here was on Deuteronomy in the rape passage in 2012. And afterwards, I got inundated with questions. Why didn't God just say, don't do that? And I said, you know, we passed the uh, Civil Rights Act in 1964. We still haven't figured it out. People move very, very slowly. And God is very patient with us. And that's the way we should be. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. These are many of the things we've talked about all summer. Are you kind toward one another? You see, this is what God made us for. This is a flourishing life. You can look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and you can see what life was meant to be like. And not only that, but you can see who God is. God can only give you out of what he has. 
And so the, the passage on the fruit of the Spirit is a picture of who God is, as well as who we were created to be and who we are becoming. And so a church that is demonstrating goodness within its own community demonstrates all of these things. And I'm not just talking about you as an individual. That's necessary. But we as a church need to demonstrate that as well. Some of you were here not very long ago when the Roe versus Wade was passed, and I pulled up my stool and I sat right here. And what did I say to you? You know, our marching orders. Um, by this, everyone will know my, you are my disciples if you have the right opinion of Roe versus Wade. And everybody started laughing. No, that's not what it says. If you have love for one another. We demonstrate patience. We demonstrate kindness. We demonstrate that peace that even though the world is not the way we want it, we're okay with it because we trust the Lord. So I asked you at that time, can we... I didn't ask anybody to change their theological convictions on this question, okay? But what I did ask you to do was sacrifice for the sake of a relationship. Next to you is somebody who has a different view than you. Are you willing to sacrifice and love that person anyway? Because we now, and this saddens me, I'm not going to lie to you, we now have the, the most liberal abortion policy in the country. Uh, you can abort a child up to the day of delivery. That saddens me. No matter where you are on the spectrum, that still saddens me. And so I ask, can we, can we maintain our unity so that we can, when these women come to our state, because we're going to become an abortion magnet, let's just be honest, and when they come here, can we love them and help them if God gives us that opportunity? Pre or post-abortion, does it really matter? Well, it does. But from our perspective as a church, how do we show love and kindness to them and bring about that sense of healing? and maybe introducing Jesus to them. Not the stereotypical Jesus, but the Jesus that we believe. This is all captured with this idea of goodness and a flourishing life. And that's what we were made for. So, once again, are you willing to pay the great price to, to enjoy this way of living? Are we as a church willing to pay this price? Every time I get up here and make a statement like this, I get an email uh, when I did the Roe versus Wade comment. I got two emails within five minutes of each other, and they went just like this. It's interesting that they use similar words. We decided to leave Dillon Community Church because we don't want to belong to a church where the pastor is such a coward. He can't tell us why abortion is sinful. We decided to leave Dillon Community Church because we don't want to belong to a church where the pastor is so cowardly, he won't tell us that abortion is the proper thing to do. Five minutes apart. And it's like, I showed it to Nancy, and I said, I just threw the ball, fastball, right down the middle of the plate when I get two on either side of the spectrum at the same, within five minutes of each other. That's the thing I'm talking about. We start taking, we start crafting all these things, these policies and statements, and we're beginning to exclude everybody. I just want, honestly, if there's a young woman that comes in, I just want to be able to, to love her and help her. Help her find the truth in who Jesus is. Are we willing to pay that price? But you have to understand, it's more than knowledge. It involves a change of heart and therefore a change of lifestyle for us to do this. Because when you walk into faith, when you walk through that door into the kingdom, Everything about you is wired to think like the world. Everything. The only thing that happens is you're forgiven. And life is given to you. We call that regeneration. That's what happens. 
But then you have the process, Paul talks about, of unlearning everything in the world that the world has taught you. And beginning that journey, that walking journey, where you begin to learn what it really means to live with a kingdom mindset. So let me say a couple of words about serving. What is serving about? Well, Jesus actually talks about this in a very famous passage in Mark 10. Um, It's kind of interesting because he just told the disciples, I love the disciples, they're bumbling idiots. And I feel like that a lot of times. And in Mark, they're especially bumbling idiots. Okay, and the other gospels are not presented quite that way as strongly as Mark does. So if you want to learn what you're like, uh, just read Mark, and then you'll know how I see you. No, wait, that was my outside voice, sorry. (laughs) Here's what he says. He just told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests, and I'm going to die. Okay? (laughs) They're going to condemn me to death. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock and spit on me, flog me, and kill me. Three days later, I will rise. Guess what the very next verse is? The, uh, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. He's like, I think, he's, I think he feels like he's with kindergartners. You know, I have a feeling he has a twinkle in his eye. And he says, okay, what is it you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. He said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He just told him he's going to suffer torture and die. That's his cup. (laughs) They said, yeah, absolutely we can. I I love the attitude. Jesus said to them, well... You will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom it has been prepared. Um, They want to sit there. One of the the gospels says when he enters his glory or his kingdom. Well, who was on his left and right when he entered his glory? Two criminals they didn't even know what they were asking for when they heard this they became indignant the 10 when the others heard it they became indignant with James and John Jesus called them together and said you know that those who regard who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you This is a picture of what we are not to be like as church leaders, okay? Here's what we are to be like, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Now, picture this in the first century world. This is very similar to when he said, you want to be my disciple? You have to take up your cross and follow me. We've kind of made it metaphorical in today's world. What did the first century people that are listening to that hear? You got to climb up on a cross and go through one of the most horrible deaths ever thought of in the, in the human history. That's what it's going to take for you to be my disciple. And what did he say here? You have to become a slave of all. 
You really want to impact the kingdom? You really want to develop a kingdom mentality of thinking? You have to become a slave. Okay? Now, in our culture, we're, we're wrestling with some of these concepts of slavery, but we've moved beyond that compared to where we were a couple hundred years ago. But they weren't. They were right in the middle of it. What did they hear when he said, you got to become a slave? You got to be willing to be beat. That's what that means. You got to be owned by somebody else that's going to take advantage of you. Peter goes so far as to say, if you, if you get beat for doing what's wrong, you deserve that. But if you get beat for doing what is right, this finds favor with God. This is kingdom thinking right here. Okay? You got to be willing to be a servant of, I mean, a slave of all. And then here it is, his own example. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you realize there's no religion in the ancient world that taught this? None. No God would ever come down and use these words. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. In fact, in the ancient world, we've talked about this. What was their thoughts? You better worry about me. That's what the sacrifices were all about, is to appease the gods. The gods were never to be emulated. To, they were an example. We just wanted to keep them satisfied so they would leave us alone. Be afraid. And our God says the opposite. I came to serve you and to give my life for you. And there we have the core definition of what service actually looks like. When you look at Jesus' mission and what the Father asked of him, here's what we discover. It is a real honor to serve others. It is a real honor to be put in that position of a slave to somebody else to help them. And quite honestly, I mean, we talk as staff and elders, the higher we are on the chain, if you will, the way the corporate world thinks, the higher we are, the more at risk we are. That's why, quite honestly, we inverted the whole planning process. You know, we talked when I got here, I don't have the wisdom to tell this church what we need to do. So we go to our committees and we ask them, what do you want? We go to the Children's Advisory Board. Thanks, Julie. See you up there. We go to the Children's Advisory Board and said, they're your children. Dream, what do you want for your kids? They're your kids. I've already done my time. We asked the Student Advisory Board, what do you want for the teens? They're your teens, they're not mine. What do you want? Jude goes to the women's leadership team. What do you guys want for the women? What do you want? And so we begin to form our planning from the ground up. And it becomes your dreams. In two weeks, we're going to have a congregational meeting. If you haven't read it, go to the website and look at the plan. This represents your dreams, quite honestly. It's your dreams from the ground up. That's how I hear the Holy Spirit is by listening to your hearts. That's how we hear it. And so we inverted the process so that it keeps us from saying, this is what you need to do. Instead, you're telling us, this is what you want us to do. So then all we do is we take your dreams and we put together a budget and said, here's what it's going to cost to live out your dream for this coming year. That's how we do planning. And this is part of that inversion to help us as, quote, leaders to really be servants. 
It's not my church. It's your church. It's your church. It's a beautiful thing to see a church that's characterized by service. You see, servanthood is not meant to be extraordinary. It's meant to be ordinary and mundane. Servanthood should describe all of our relationships and the way we relate to each other. So how are you sacrificing for others? How are you becoming a slave? If we all do it, it's a beautiful thing. If only 10 of us do it, it's not. What are you doing? How does that look like? You see, the moment Peter and Paul use the word sacrifice to describe us, here's what should happen. When I say you're a sacrifice, you should look around and say, who am I a sacrifice on behalf of? Well, all of your fellow believers, but as well as the world, your neighbors. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when we all do it, the church is unstoppable. And that becomes the primary characteristic of the church. Who wouldn't want to belong to that? You're going to learn at the congregational meeting that uh, we gave so much money in the last year to helping people. So many food. And that's just the things that you can quantify. And I know some of your stories, the things that you're doing out there, it's just amazing. How are you sacrificing and serving others? How are you becoming a slave? That's what Jesus asked of us. We walk through the door into the kingdom, and then we begin that journey to untangle all the world things up here and begin to reshape our thinking around kingdom living. And kingdom living at the very heart of it is being a servant. That's the very heart. Everything we've talked about all summer comes back to this right here, being a servant. And it should be ordinary. If you've never done it, let me encourage you to look at, look at other people in the church. You don't have to let them know you're doing it. But do something sacrificial for them. You know? Learn to develop that as a mindset. You ever pull up to a fast food restaurant and you drive through and you say, you pay your bill and I'd like to pay the guy's car behind me you ever do that i drove up the other day and stunned me i went to pay my bill and it said the guy that just drove off paid it for you that's supposed to be me <laughs> not him and it's just the the joy and the laughter that that brought you can find ways to serve others you can as a church are we willing to uh pay the pearl of great price we're willing to sell everything we have to get the money to go buy that pearl that's kingdom thinking. Father, thank you. Thank you for your incredible love for us that you would send your son to come down to live a life amongst us in a very broken and fallen world and then choose to die for us, to come down specifically to serve us. You didn't ask us to serve you. You came to serve us. That's breathtaking for us. And Lord, I'll be the first to confess that getting rid of these ways of the world is a challenge. Help us, Father, as a church to 
adopt these kingdom values so that they become our defining characteristics. I want people, when they think of Dillon Community Church, to think there's a group of people, they love their God, and they serve, and they sacrifice for the rest of us. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.